Welcome to episode 94 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Lim. And I'm Peter Alegi, and our special guest today is Professor Renfrew Christie. He was a prominent leader of the National Union of South African Students in the early 1970s and went on to write his doctoral thesis at Oxford University on electrification of South Africa, later published as the wonderful book Electricity, Industry, and Class in South Africa. This and his earlier experiences in the South African army helped him uncover the apartheid regime's nuclear weapons program, exposure of which saw him spend seven years as a political prisoner when he was tortured. He recently retired as Dean of Research at University of the Western Cape, and he's currently visiting professor at the University of Kentucky. Welcome. Thank you very much. Well, South Africa has had a, a very interesting past few years. They hosted the 2010 World Cup, the Soccer World Cup, very successfully. But there's also been some interesting political uh, changes. There's, uh, you know, the, the case of the Encantla um, uh, scandal where public money was, was used for uh, the private residents of the president that got a lot of press. Uh, there was a, a massacre by the police of workers uh, at the uh, platinum mine up in Marikana. There's Chinese uh, involvement in South Africa in a whole number of ways. South Africa is part of the BRICS countries and, and a leader in the global south. How do you see South Africa's uh, situation today, both perhaps politically and economically, in this upside-down world of ours? I think South Africa today remains a triumph compared to what would have happened had there been another 20, 30 years of civil war. The Good Story to Tell campaign lists a hundred wonderful things that have happened since 1994. Electricity to 15, 20 million people who didn't have it before. Water to the same number, clean water. The schooling system is not perfect, but it's better. The health system is not perfect, but it's better. The economy is double the size that it was under the old system when the West was supporting apartheid. It is a triumph. The condition of women is significantly better. We have significant numbers of women in the parliament and in the cabinet. We have a bill of rights, which I paid a tiny part in writing, which works. We have a constitutional court, which works. We are in many, in many ways leaders of the South and the non-aligned movement. We have respect around the world, which we didn't have before. That said, only my wife and daughters are perfect. Uh, the rest of the world I'm not so sure about. And yes, there are problems. There are a whole lot of problems attached to, if you like, the end-of-cycle world economic crisis, partly caused by the triumph of China in bringing 200 or 300 million people out of the rice paddies into cities as, let's call them, a middle class, as an industrial proletariat, if you like. But they have meant that there's been a vast deindustrialization across the world, whether in Europe, in uh, America, or in South Africa. So our trade unions in that sense are a, on a hiding to nothing. They can't undercut the Chinese uh, production, which, let's face it, is in part a forced labor system. We know that because the Chinese rural commissar complained bitterly when the American crooked bankers ruined the world in 2008. The Chinese endorsed out, it's a past law system, 25 million people from the Chinese cities back into the rice paddies, and the rural commissar said he couldn't cope. So 
China has a long way to go in terms of workers' rights, in terms of that sort of bottom-up democracy. Nonetheless, its achievement in 300 million people into the middle class is astounding. It's a triumph for all of humanity. It has meant a whole lot of difficulties the world over for industrial production, and South Africa is not alone in those sorts of struggles. But we have managed to redesign the economy. Uh, I think we've got a lot further to go. The redesign in my head that's needed now is a massive urbanization as a matter of explicit policy. This is very difficult politically because there is a rural dream. There is a, it's almost the old 18th century British yeoman and his ox sort of thing. Everybody's got a right to a little bit of land and that's how it should be found. But we're a fundamentally dry country, two-thirds semi-desert, and we cannot bring water to every family efficiently wherever they are in that desert. We can do that once we have them in cities. So I would want an urbanization program, a proper one, which does also mean fixing what's wrong with some of our cities. But right now that's a political difficulty. To address the issues around Nkandla and so on, Notwithstanding all of that, the ordinary people of the country voted in enormous numbers. We have very large turnouts at elections. The ones that put the United States to shame. Exactly. Our voters' role doesn't have the limitations that are plain in the United States case. So most of the adults indeed are on the voters' role, and a huge number of them vote and 62.5% of that voted for the African National Congress. One way of seeing the South African Democratic Revolution is that it was done by Mandela the God. He was spectacular, but actually he was in prison. And so the ordinary people of the country had to do the revolution. Indeed, they did it. And they know why they fought for one unified country, for non-racialism, for non-sexism for everything that's enshrined in the Bill of Rights. And by 62.5%, they currently think the ANC is the set of people who should do it. There is a bit of a youth age thing, as there always has been in ANC politics. The Youth League of 1943, Tambo, Lembedi, and Mandela. That happens routinely, that age versus youth game in the ANC, and for the ordinary people of the country, they know who's going to deliver best. The problem is how to do it in the world context, and to dress in Kandla, let's just assume that in Kandla is in fact corruption, that's not yet proven, but assume that it is. We are still absolutely minor, tiny players compared to Enron, Arthur Anderson, Lehman Brothers, uh, Bear Stearns, Bearings, J.P. Morgan, Chase, AIG, Fannie Mae, the Icelandic banks, the Royal Bank of Scotland, Credit Suisse, Credit Agricole, the Deutsche Bank, I can go on and on, all of whom have paid fines in the billions of dollars, uh, but only, I think, three people ended up in jail. It's very odd that they can't put people who are paying fines in the billions of dollars into jail, but we are at a stage in the world cycle where corruption is worldwide, which would not excuse corruption in South Africa, and I've got a quite firm view on corruption in South Africa. 
I think you take the obvious cases and you prosecute. But then it's in front of a fair judge, a fair trial, and you have the right to cross-examine witnesses and you are not guilty until found guilty. So while there's an awful lot of mudslung, actual hard evidence of corruption is what's needed and it's not obviously coming forward. But to summarize, South Africa is a triumph compared to what it was when the West was dogmatically, bitterly supporting apartheid with all its racist and anti-democratic features. The West for 40 years cast strong vetoes at the United Nations in favor of apartheid. For 40 years it armed apartheid, even secretly after the arms embargo. It enabled apartheid to get nuclear weapons. The West was radically anti-democratic for those 40 years for perfectly obvious Cold War reasons. But if you compare the catastrophe that the West left in 1994 to where we are now, it is a triumph of democracy. Right. And to give Dennis Healy his credit, he's the only politician that I know of who in his autobiography apologizes for the support of apartheid by the West, but it was bipartisan. The Labour Party in Britain, the Conservative Party in Britain, the Republican Party and the Democrats all supported apartheid in South Africa. And that we've got out of that mess, I do think, is a triumph. Okay, so we'll come back to the apartheid in a minute. And uh, But while we are in this vein of contemporary uh, issues, can you speak to transformation in South African universities and your thoughts on development of research where you've worked now for so many years to develop the research agenda at the University of the Western Cape. Your thoughts on this area? South African universities are underfunded both by donors and by government. They are dealing with students who are impoverished, which means that whatever they do has a serious funding problem attached to them. They have been massified, to use the phrase government used in the original policy, so that you have much larger numbers of students without a concomitant increase in the faculty, as as it would be called in America. They vary from the really quite good to the not so good. Transformation has been slow, partly because of a dogged cultural attachment to the 1950s and partly because of a lack of cash, and you need both. If you do want to hire a black female astrophysicist who has the necessary publications, PhD in mathematical and science ability, to be a full professor, she will look at the salary offered by a South African university and then she will look at what one of the big corporations in South Africa who are under the same pressure to transform will offer. And let's just guess some numbers. She looks at a half a million rand, $50,000 a year as a professor, and she looks at 10 times that in one of the big corporations. Uh, She even looks to the civil service where she'll be paid twice what she'll be paid as a professor for about half the work. Mm. So the transformation is difficult. Mm. That said, I do think there is a set of people in the universities who are in no hurry to do it. So there are various reasons going on here. Universities move slowly the entire world over. I'm 
at least as interested in keeping up with revolutions in science, and I use science to include all of the humanities, um, such that the South African universities can continue to play their world research role. They have got better. My job at the University of the Western Cape, as requested by the then Vice-Chancellor Jake Schervel, who went on to be Cabinet Secretary and uh, Chief of Staff to Mandela in the first government, that he said, I want you to help to build a research institution of what was a deliberately second-class historically black university. We were giving one PhD a year. When I arrived in 1990, I retired last year, and we were giving 120 PhDs. And they're good PhDs when we don't give them away for nothing. We were 25th in the country in terms of all the research ratings. That university, depending on which ratings you use, is now either 5th, 6th, or 7th in the country. And the four better than we are are big, old, rich, ex-white universities. So there has been substantial change uh, with real achievement, including the graduation and promotion of black women physical scientists, life sciences. We have made real transformations there. The University of the Western Cape is a success story. It's public health school. I wrote the first fundraising document. I wrote the constitution, played a key role in hiring the first director. It's fair to say it's now probably the best in Africa has a huge reputation anyway, and it's trained every district health manager in the country in sandwich courses. I had the privilege of sharing an office with Dalla Omar, who was the director of the UWC Community Law Centre, a human rights law outfit. He went on to be First Minister of Justice in the democracy, and I helped to hire back Professor Kada Asmal, ANC constitutional lawyer who had been in exile in Ireland and more or less as he got off the plane he threw the draft of the Bill of Rights at me and and said tell me what's wrong with it and I wrote all over it so my handwriting is on the second draft of the Bill of Rights and I'm rather proud of that I played a very tiny role in that but it's a nice thing and after democracy had been achieved That constitutional law centre went in as friends of the court in most of the big constitutional law cases. So, for example, my signature is on the brief for the Navirapine mother-to-child AIDS drug case where the Treatment Action Committee, the prime movers, forced the government to give AIDS drugs to pregnant mothers and probably saved a significant number, perhaps in the millions, of babies' lives. We're on the Grootboom and Moderdam right to shelter cases. We were on the crossing the floor case. That centre also, in the shape of Julius Sloth Nielsen, who was a dean of law while I was dean of research, wrote with others most of the new and really good child law for South Africa, and she's since then written child law for 20 African states. So that institution is playing its role not only in transforming South Africa, but also in transforming 
large chunks of Africa. So, and you can go round all the universities and find cases like that. Mm. It's a cup half empty, cup half full. Right. I do think there are significant gaps and things that haven't been done in transformation. On the other hand, it's massively not what it was as it was left by the West when they were supporting apartheid. Let's turn back to that uh, uh, grisly beast of apartheid now and uh, have a look at the hunt for apartheid's nuclear bombs. Briefly, how did you get involved and what did you discover? I was a child soldier conscript. I was forced into the South African Army at the age of 17. There was no inconscription campaign. I went into it. I came from a family of Second World War heroes who had fought the Nazis. And we need to remember that many of the apartheid leaders had been pro-Nazi supporters, even saboteurs, mm. in the Second World War. John Forster was not hanged in 1942. He was interned. And when he finally got to be prime minister, he said they should have hanged me when they had the chance. But because of my family's history of fighting uh, the Nazis and evil, I had no problem with an armed struggle. I was quite convinced the ANC was right to go into armed struggle, and I was that for a, from a very early age. I'm an old-fashioned Democrat. I think all adult human beings get the vote. I nonetheless went into the apartheid army, and while I was in there, and it's fair to say I was a bright child, I saw something that I was not supposed to see that told me they were playing with nuclear weapons. I did not trust John Forster with nuclear weapons. So from the age of 17, I was hunting the, the apartheid atom bomb. I didn't tell anybody. And I got deeply into student politics. I was arrested four times before I was 21. I shared a house with the wonderful Father Cosmas Desmond, Franciscan priest who wrote about the bulldozing of his flock, his religious people, black people who were in the so-called wrong area, wrong black spot, read the book The Discarded People in the Dumping Grounds. Their houses were bulldozed and they were moved 300 miles somewhere else and just dumped. He was then banned and house arrested. Winnie Mandela had got out of 18 months or something of torture in prison and was banned and house arrested. And while I was sharing the house with Cos, she wanted to come visit Cos during the day. It was illegal for her to do that, so she came to visit me. So I saw a lot of Winnie and of Joyce Sikakani, who was ANC underground at the time. And it's fair to say that in addition to cooking me lunch, Winnie Mandela taught me a lot of politics. I was elected deputy president of the National Union of South African Students. Uh, we called a nationwide protest for free education now. I was standing in a suit and tie on the steps of the cathedral um, John Forster let his cops out to come and hit us on the head. Copper came running up to me, was about to hit me on the head, looked at my suit and tie and said, sorry, sir, and hit the person next to me. <laughs> I was never sure if that made me a scab, but anyway, I was glad not to be hit, and I've worn a suit and tie ever since. I got a scholarship to Oxford two weeks before my army regiment invaded Angola. I did not want to invade Angola for the apartheid army. Had a wonderful time in Oxford did a doctorate on the electrification of South Africa. It's a straight-up economic history, political history, archivally based. And the reason South Africa is an industrial state is very cheap electricity, partly relying on forced labour, the past law and the compound system, mining cheap coal. But I did it also 
in order to continue spying on the bomb because you can't enrich uranium without lots of electricity. And the South Africans got and modified a German uranium enrichment system, which the Germans couldn't use because the electricity was too expensive. So I designed my doctoral thesis, which is a straight-up perfectly acceptable academic work, also so that I could spy on the bomb. And in chapter 9 of that thesis, I report that, this is now 1979, the South Africans have everything they need to make nuclear weapons if they wish to. And one of the documents, one of the documents with which I was charged giving to the ANC was a study of where it's safe to let off big or very small nuclear weapons in South Africa, supposedly for peaceful purposes. That study shows where you can let off a sub-kiloton range, a very small nuclear weapon, but they did it by race group. So it was analyzing where you could damage white property, Indian property, so-called colored property, black property, without damaging the others. It could be said they did everything by race group, or it could be read as an ethnic cleansing thing. The bombs in the end, they made six and a half of them that they admitted to. They disassembled them because the United States and Britain did a an analysis, what if the new democratic government were anti-United States and Britain, and I don't know quite how they got there, but they sort of said, oh, well, maybe Mandela will give it to Gaddafi. So one of the prerequisites of the democratic settlement was that the bombs must be disassembled, and indeed they were. I played a small role, if you like, as a whistleblower on that. And the, the story of uh, uranium and, and the Cold War continues. It was, the Washington Post recently ran a, uh, a piece talking about uh, some of the enriched uranium that South Africa uh, continues to store outside Pretoria. What's going on in that, uh, in that department? Uh, it seems to me, when you visited the seminar that we hold on, on Wednesday night, uh, that you were quite concerned, not just about the South African side of the story, but the number of powers around the world, countries who have access to enough material to build bombs if they want to, are very close, and, and um, you presented a rather grim scenario. Can you share some of that insight with, with the listeners? I think the entire world is perpetually in danger. Uh, there is this doomsday clock of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which they move in back and forth from five to midnight to three to minutes to midnight, back to five minutes to, to midnight. But it is true there is always a real problem of possible nuclear warfare. And there is always the possibility that there are states very close to nuclear weapons. The peace treaty of the Second World War is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which says a certain set of states can continue to own nuclear weapons. Nobody else should get them. But the trade-off for that is twofold. The nuclear weapon states must diminish and then cease to own nuclear weapons. If all the rest of the world can't own them, they've eventually got to get rid of them. That's the p point one. And the second point is that the rest of the world is entitled to do peaceful nuclear stuff, both research and nuclear power. The states that were really not permitted to own the bombs were Germany and Japan. 
I think that article and a lot of the literature suggests that it would take all of one day for Germany and Japan to actually have nuclear weapons. They've got all the tech they need. Um, I count them in my head as nuclear weapon states. They both sit on five tons of plutonium. It takes five kilograms of plutonium to make a bomb. Something like 60 states have the industrial scientific ability to make nuclear weapons. Something like 40 of them do have fissile material inside their own borders that they could use. So how many are within a year or two should they have to? I'm a neo-realist in international politics. States do what they need to do in an international anarchy. None of the international laws actually hold. And the NPT is a classic case. The nuclear weapons powers have not done what they're required to do by it. And a number of powers have become nuclear weapon states despite the NPT since its signing. It's a paper tiger. The particular article is about the United States trying to order a sovereign democratic state, South Africa, to get rid of highly enriched uranium to which the country is entitled under the Non-Proliferation Treaty to do peaceful things with, and indeed the country earns billions of rand every year from isotopes coming off that for medical purposes. And Mandela, uh, Mbeki, and Zuma have all said a very fierce no to the United States as what they call arrogance, the presidents of South Africa, in trying to order South Africa to do something that South Africa is perfectly entitled to do under the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And back in the 50s, uh, American and British governments were working with Pretoria around uranium? They were desperate for uranium, the biggest capital investment project in all of African history, and I include Cheops Pyramid, was the Western Transvaal and Orange Free State gold fields led by Ernest Oppenheimer. And a vast amount of money was poured into them because they had uranium as a byproduct. And over the, ne the next 40 years of apartheid, something like either 100 or 150,000 tons of pure uranium metal, not U308 yellow cake, but pure metal, was exported from South Africa to Britain and America, so later to France. hypocrisy. <laughs> yeah, but what in the process of that America gave a very large amount of weapons-grade nuclear fuel for a research reactor to South Africa um, around 58-60 under the so-called Atoms for Peace project. So there is a considerable hypocrisy in America and Britain trusting the white apartheid racist leaders with nuclear weapons, demanding that those nuclear weapons go away at the end of apartheid. The ANC liked that because the ANC didn't want them anyway. White National Party South Africa liked that because they didn't want to give it to black people. But that history uh, makes it sort of odd that America's being so adamant now that this relatively small amount of enriched uranium should go away. There is an issue of safety, as there is in the many American plants and many French plants and so on, where I benevolent dictator of the world, I would possibly keep the South African enriched uranium rather better with rather bigger forces around it and so on. I'd increase the security. 
but that South Africa has the right to own it is plain in international law. And it's a serious puzzle why they are so aggressively attacked to get rid of it. Well, there's many sobering uh, things to ponder on about power that we've discussed today. And um, I'm also reminded that electrification has been one of the success stories since 1994 in the sense of the um, lights going on in, in townships that lack that electricity. But um, thank you so very much, Professor Renfrew Christie, for talking to Africa past and present. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.